Simon is a zealot for whatever. We're not told what, but most likely it seems to be the case that he's a zealot for getting rid of uh, the political powers that be in Rome. So what I want us to do is really to understand, because here's the, here's the next thing. How many times have we said, as we're going over these 12 apostles, there's only certain ones that we're given much information about. The majority of the 12 apostles, it's like, okay, he's listed here in Luke chapter 6. For this guy, Luke 6 verse 15 is where we see Simon who was the zealot. Luke 6 15. But other than when his name is listed in the list of the 12, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts, nothing else told in the New Testament about Simon the zealot. Nothing else told about him. And so we have to sort of dig a little deeper and think a little clearer about what it means to be a zealot, why someone would have been called this in order to try and understand something about the background of this man, Simon. So to do that, here's the history lesson we have to do tonight. All too brief, way oversimplified, but here's the history lesson that we have to do. Did you know, some of you know this, I know Brother Jimmy and I uh, this morning were talking about this for just one very brief, quick moment. Did you know that today is the first day of Hanukkah? Did you know that? Maybe you saw that somewhere on the news. Maybe on a calendar you got hanging up somewhere. Maybe it says today's the first day of Hanukkah. It's going to last for the next eight days till next Monday. And now maybe you're thinking, why in the world are you bringing that up? Well, Hanukkah is mentioned in the New Testament, mentioned in the Gospel of John. We'll look at that in a moment. But there's a reason why we have to understand this history in order to understand who Simon the Zealot was. So let's go on this journey with me. Go all the way back to the days of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, you know about him. He was the ruler of the day, had ruled over such a huge portion of the known world. When he passed away, his huge, huge empire was coveted and it was fought over. Originally, it was divided into four different groups, four different men running it. But all that ever happened after Alexander the Great's empire was divided up was those four individuals fought and then others fought wanting it. It was a power grab and it was a continual war for people trying to get on and latch onto and hold onto the power that Alexander once had. And so that brings us to about the year 215 BC to 164 BC in that time frame. There's a man named Antiochus IV. And of course, remember, nobody goes by just one name. He has to give himself a nickname. I'm Antiochus IV, but you'll call me Epiphanes. Epiphanes means, this is a guy with a big ego, God manifest. You know, Emmanuel of Jesus means God with us. That's a divine, true, righteous name. Jesus was and is God with us. Antiochus called himself Epiphanes because he wanted you to know, I'm God manifest, God in the flesh. So he's a blasphemer, power hungry, all sorts of issues. And what he wanted to do was he wanted world domination. He wanted his empire to grow and grow and grow, be like that of Alexander the Great who preceded him. And he wanted it to be even bigger. He wanted to be the next Alexander. And in his quest for domination, one of the things that he did, because he's trying to perpetuate what Alexander did and make the world into a one large Greek world, wanted to push Greek culture, Greek ideas, and so if you were a, a group, a body, a culture of people who were going to be a roadblock to pushing Greek ideas, he wanted you silenced. So he outlawed Judaism. Antiochus Epiphanes outlaws Judaism. You're not allowed to have Hebrew scriptures in your possession. 
You're not allowed to keep Sabbath anymore. You're not allowed to circumcise your children anymore. We have record from men like Josephus that would tell us that whole families were executed by Antiochus when he found them trying to keep these Jewish traditions. In fact, uh, one record tells us that when he caught families circumcising their children, you know, circumcising the children on the eighth day is going all the way back to Genesis 17. When he caught families circumcising their little boys on the eighth day, he not only killed those parents, he crucified those parents and then hung those babies around their necks. As they hung there on those crosses, their children hanging from their necks. It's basically saying, you know, when Jesus was hung from the cross, there was that sign hung by him saying, here's the king of the Jews. In other words, that's your crime. Claiming to be a king, that's why you're being killed. Well, for them to demonstrate their crime, trying to be Jewish, trying to keep the Jewish law, that's why they were being executed. And so one of the things they would do is he was pushing more and more and more to demonstrate his power, keep people from keeping the Jewish religion. And in 167 BC, so about 167 years before Jesus, Antiochus and his army marches into Jerusalem. They ransack the temple. They put up images of Zeus. They sacrifice a pig on the altar there in the temple. So they have desecrated the temple. And that wasn't enough. It wasn't enough just to make the, the temple an unholy, desecrated place. They then left Jerusalem and then went out into the surrounding regions, the surrounding villages, and tried to go and brainwash and intimidate and strong-arm the people in their villages. And so what they would do is they would go into these certain villages, they would find sort of the, the, the man who was the patriarch of the town, the, the old man who ran things and taught things, and they would try and get him to sacrifice a pig on the altar and then feed it to the people of the town. Well, they came to one particular town. They found this man named Matthias, old priest, faithful old man there in the town. And they said, Matthias, sacrifice this pig and feed it to your brothers here in town. And he refused. And they even said, look, we'll make it worth your while. We'll, we'll pay you. We'll make you rich. Just sacrifice this pig. It's no big deal. And then feed it to the people around. And he said, no. Well, one fellow standing there in the crowd said he would do it. And so he marches up to the altar and he's about to sacrifice this pig. And Matthias can't take it anymore. So he jumps into action and he kills this man and keeps him from doing it. Matthias's five sons, they rise up as well. They take up arms also and they begin their own revolution to go and take back Jerusalem. So Antiochus' soldiers had been spreading this Greek culture, trying to get others to, to give up. And these men rise up. One of the things I want you to see is going to come from a book called, we're going to read this together here. This is from a book called First Maccabees. Not inspired literature. It's just a bit of history, Jewish history, written in the year about 100 BC. But I want you to hear what happens. This is the record from this Jewish historian about what happened with these people. And you're going to see the origins, the origins of those people who would later call themselves zealots, like Simon the Zealot. Be listening for that word, zeal be listening for that that charge that battle cry to say rise up and be a, a zealous person here's what the bible or not excuse me here's what first maccabees not scripture i'm so used to just every time i read here's what the bible says i'm not reading the bible right now you hear that i'm not reading the bible right now this is the history from first maccabees written in 100 bc not inspired this is what it says chapter 2 verse 15 
They're reading it too. The king's officers who were enforcing the apostasy. Remember, this is what I was telling you. Antiochus's men were going out in villages and trying to get these Jewish people to sacrifice pigs, do these things that would desecrate and make them unholy. So the king's officers were enforcing the apostasy, came to the town of Modin to make them offer sacrifice. Many from Israel came to them, and Matthias and his sons were assembled there. The king's officers spoke to Matthias as follows. You're a leader, honored and great in this town, and supported by sons and brothers. Now, be the first to come and do what the king commands, as all Gentiles and the people of Judah and those that are left in Jerusalem have done. Then you and your sons will be numbered among the friends of the king, and you and your sons will be honored with silver and gold and many gifts. We'll make you rich if you'll do this. But Matthias answered and said in a loud voice, even if all the nations that live under the rule of the king obey him and have chosen to obey his commandments, every one of them abandoning the religion of their ancestors, I and my sons and my brothers will continue to live by the covenant of our ancestors. Far be it from us to desert the law and the ordinances. We will not obey the king's word by turning aside from our religion to the right hand or the left. When we, or excuse me, when he had finished speaking these words, a Jew came forward in the sight of all to offer sacrifice on the altar according to the king's command. When Matthias saw it, now listen, are you ready to hear about a zealot? When Matthias saw it, he burned with zeal and his heart was stirred. And he gave vent to righteous anger. He ran and killed him on the altar. At the same time, he killed the king's officer who was forcing them to sacrifice, and he tore down the altar. Thus he burned with zeal for the law, just as Phinehas did against Zimri, the son of Salu. Then Matthias cried out in the town with a loud voice, saying, Let everyone who is zealous for the law and supports the covenant come out with me. Then he and his sons fled to the hills and left all that they had in the town. Then later on, moving forward to the very end of Matthias' life, these are some of his very last words. Now the days drew near for Matthias to die, and he said to his sons, Arrogance and scorn have now become strong. It's a time of ruin and furious anger. Now my children, show zeal for the law and give your lives for the covenant of our ancestors. So there's the background, there's the history written in about 100 B.C., about what took place in about 167 B.C., about these people who said, we've had enough. We're not going to allow these outsiders, these pagans, these godless people to come in and force us to turn away from God's law. We're not going to have it anymore. We're going to take a stand. We're going to be zealous for God's law. And so it was from this, seemingly being the first one who would say, be a zealot, be the one who stands up and fight for our people, it would eventually lead to those people like Simon in the, in the first century, in the days of Jesus, who would be known as Simon the Zealot. Now, the story continues on. Um, those who followed, followed Matthias there in, in 167, they continued the rebellion. They eventually pushed their way to Jerusalem. They drove out the Syrians. They recaptured the temple. They tore down the statue of Zeus. They built a new altar. They prepared to rededicate the temple. Right, They had to go through a process of cleansing it and getting it ready again to, to engage in the worship of God. And in the holy place, they found the, the candlestick, the lampstand, the menorah, 
It had been damaged, and so they repaired it. Now the legend is, and what is the origin of, of Hanukkah? The legend is they found the menorah there, they repaired it, and only had one day's worth of oil. And that one day's worth of oil burned for eight days. And so there's eight days worth of, of Hanukkah. It's called Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication, or the Festival of Lights. That's what it's called, multiple names. So look at John chapter 10. Look at John 10. This is going to be one of those places where we see this in the New Testament referred to, not commanded to be kept, just referred to as being something that was going on as Jesus was there. Because remember, what had happened was the Syrian Greeks, led by Antiochus, had come into the temple and desecrated it. And so it had to be rededicated, cleansed, fixed, made holy again. And so one of the things they called this time was the Feast of Dedication, right? So in Matthew chapter 10 at verse 22, it says it was at the time of the Feast of Dedication, a.k.a. the Festival of Lights, a.k.a. Hanukkah. It was at the time of the Feast of Dedication that took place in Jerusalem, and it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. And so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Well, so nothing is said there about the Lord telling us to keep Hanukkah and those kinds of things. It just says Jesus was there in the town, in the temple, when this was going on at that time. But what I want to emphasize for a moment here is this concept, play on that idea of this being the, the festival of lights. Because what does the Gospel of John tell us that Jesus is? Go back to John chapter 1. We'll read it just a few lines here in John 1. Just to make a, a spiritual, biblical, New Testament point. In John chapter 1, look at verse 4. In him, that is in Jesus, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then Jesus himself would say this. You go to John chapter 8. John 8, look at just verse 12. John 8, 12. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So there absolutely is a light that we should care about, a light that we should follow, a light that we should bask in and revel in. It's the light of Jesus the Christ, the one who is the light of the world. Knowing him, because he is the way, truth, and life. That means that he's the way to get to the Father. There's no other way to the Father but by him. No other way to see or be except by Jesus the Christ. He's the light of the world. You and I stumble in darkness until we see things through him. And he's called us to be the kind of people that are lights. Just like he's the light of the world, he expects us in turn to be a light. He says in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you are a city set on a hill, and what you are to be is to be the kind of people, you're like a lamp set on a lampstand, your light is to shine in such a way that others can see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. The Lord expects us to be a light to the nations, a light to the world, who show them him, Jesus, the light of the world. So there's no festival of lights that we're to keep. There's no uh, expectations of us to, to stop on day one of Hanukkah and keep for the next eight days. That's not, 
That's not a biblical admonition. But it absolutely is the case that we are to know and follow and bask in and walk in the light. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. If you walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and with the Father and the blood of Jesus the Christ continues to cleanse us from all our sins. So at the festival of lights, Jesus was there, but he had to tell them what the light really was and who the really light really was. Last thing I want to do is we talk about this man, Simon the Zealot. Let's talk about what it is to be zealous. Go to Romans chapter 10 real quick. Romans 10. Because one of the things to point out is that this man, Simon the Zealot, quite clearly was somebody who was passionate. He was somebody who was sincere. He was somebody who was willing to put his own life on the line in order to accomplish the goals that he thought were important. Simon quite clearly was someone who gave his heart and soul and life to a cause he believed in. But he needed that energy focused in the right direction. He had to come to know Jesus. He had to come to follow Jesus, come to know the true cause for the rest of his life, right? It's one thing to love a nation, love a country. He had to love Jesus. He had to know what the real purpose of life was about. It was one thing to be excited about overthrowing Rome. They're evil and they're bad. Do you know Jesus? Have you followed him? Have you given yourself to him? That was what he had to know. And so Paul would write this in Romans chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for them. This is talking about his fellow Jews. Those that, that may well be a part of the, the zealot party. My heart's desire, my prayer to God for my fellow Jews is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal. They do absolutely have a zeal. They are excited about and they are passionate about. They have a zeal for God. But that zeal is not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. Then go over a little bit to Romans 12. Emphasizing here, before we get to the next one, emphasizing in Romans 10, sincerity is important. Sincerity is necessary. You absolutely must be full of love and emotion and desire when it comes to being obedient and following and being submissive to Jesus Christ. But sincerity is not enough. You can be sincerely wrong. Paul would say that of himself over and over and over again. When I was pulling Christians out of their homes, when I was kicking in their doors and hauling them off to jail, when I was standing there watching Stephen be stoned to death, I had a clear conscience. I was sincere and I was zealous and I was confident I was doing what was right. But turns out I was dead wrong. I was persecuting Jesus as I was persecuting his church. So sincerity was powerful and sincerity was great, but sincerity was leading him to hell. It must be sincerity plus knowledge, emotion plus the truth. That's why Jesus would say in John chapter 4, verse 24, that we are to be people who worship God in spirit and in truth. And so he says, I'm thankful that they were zealous. 
but they needed zeal plus knowledge, Romans 10. And then here in Romans 12, Romans 12, verse 6, where it starts. Romans 12, 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If it's prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service and serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, and listen to this, the one who contributes in generosity and the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. In other words, whatever you have been given to do by the Lord, you are to do it with great energy, with great being a zealot for whatever portion or whatever position you're in. The writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon would say in Ecclesiastes 9 verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Whatever it is you're doing, do it with zeal. Don't do anything halfway. Don't do anything uh, lazily. Do it with zeal and excitement. But do it connected to, submissive to, subordinate to knowledge. Peter would say it this way in 1 Peter 3 verse 13. Now who is there to harm you? Now look this. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? In other words, just because you're zealous doesn't mean you get off scot-free. You can be zealous and be zealous for what's sinful and wicked, short of what God wants us to do. And if you're zealous for those things, then you should be punished. You should be struck down when you're doing those things, even if you're doing them with great zeal and sincerity. He says, but you have nothing to fear if you're showing great zeal in what is good and righteous and true. And so that brings us back to this, this man, Simon, the one that in Luke 6, verse 15, is known as Simon, who's called the zealot. We can say, even though we know so little about him, here's what we absolutely do know. He was going down one path, most likely going down that path at 100 miles an hour with all of his strength, and he had to come to know Jesus to turning to the right path, to go in a direction that really meant something, to go in a direction and start fighting for something that really mattered. He might have to give up a little fame, might have to give up a little power, might have to give up some authority, whatever it might be, and switch gears and leave one life that he knew to embrace a different one. And I love the fact that he now still calls him Simon the Zealot. That would have reminded him of his past, but also have encouraged him of what his present was to be. Simon, you are now a zealot for me. Simon, you are now one who's going to help overthrow the shackles of Satan who reigns and oppresses. Simon, you're now the one who's going to help be a leader and a fighter in a cause for a kingdom that can't ever be overthrown. You're still a zealot, Simon, but it's my zealot now. Totally different life. I wonder if the Lord looked at us, just like he named Simon the Zealot, could Jesus look at you or at me and say, you're my Zealot also? Or would he look at you and have to call you or me, instead of Simon the Zealot, maybe Simon the lackadaisical, or Simon the mediocre, or Simon the asleep, or Simon, why not Simon the Zealot? Why not the one who's on fire and excited for the truth? Why not the one who's on fire and excited for the true and living God, the one who is the way, truth, and life? He continued to call him Simon the Zealot as they went out into the world to turn the world upside down. I wonder what he would call us. Could Jesus righteously, rightfully, truthfully call us his zealot?
if you've been asleep, if you've been quietly just coasting along, wake up, stand up, start fighting for the one who matters. Allow Jesus to honestly call you his zealot. And if there's any way that we can help you or encourage you this night, then courageously let us know while we stand and sing. Thank you.